Let's pray together as we open up God's word. Now, I was reading in Luke this week, and there's a section where Jesus says to his disciples, fix these words in your ears. And that's what I've been trying to do with this passage, because I need to have this passage more fixed in my ears. And so let's ask the Lord to help us to do that, to fix these words in our ears, so that this week and in the weeks and months and years to come, we can be transformed by them. Lord, please come and do that. We desperately need to hear these words. I need to hear these words afresh. Lord, you want to transform our perspective on trials and suffering today. But we need your power to be transformed. So please work with power in our hearts. Help us trust what you say. Help us love your glory. Help us to believe what you say and be transformed by what you say. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. And as I mentioned, in this passage, Peter talks about trials and suffering. And some Christians think that trials and suffering are random events, that they are Really, no no particular meaning or purpose. They just happen. And so, if you believe that way, then like if you get a migraine headache, you might just say, well, this is bad luck. Or if you your tire blows out, you run over a nail or something in the freeway, and you have to pull over, you might just say, well, this is the result of being in a fallen world. But you don't really look for any meaning or, or purpose behind them. And so that raises a question. Is there meaning or purpose behind the trials, and the suffering that we face. Now, Jan and I had to wrestle with that question in the early years of our marriage where we discovered that we were not able to get pregnant. And this was a hard time for us, full of disappointment and heartache and, and sorrow, but it drove us to God's Word to search out what does the Bible teach about trials, and suffering. And it was at this same time that I was taking a class in seminary on 1 Peter. And Peter talks a lot about trials and suffering, and I read this passage that we're going to be looking at today. And what I saw in this passage and all of 1 Peter is that God has a beautiful purpose for every trial you face, the big ones and the small ones. Every trial you face God has a beautiful purpose for it. And that transformed us as we understood what this purpose was and as Jan and I experienced this purpose that he had for this particular trial, it transformed us. It comforted us. God met us. Now, I should also mention that God ended up blessing us with two children who we adopted as newborns. And Anna is now 29 years old. She texted me this morning and said, I'm at a Steely Dan concert. Do you you know about Steely Dan? I I totally know about, anybody know about Steely Dan here? Okay. And Brad's 26 years old, so we we couldn't imagine not being the father and the mother to Anna and to Brad. So God blessed us with two children that we could adopt. But through the months and years of not being able to get pregnant, understanding God's purpose for that trial was deeply comforting, and encouraging to us. 
And that's what I'm praying God will do in in your hearts today. I would guess that some of you are going through severe trials and suffering. Group this size, I'm sure it's the case. We want you to know you are not alone. Every believer, the strongest believers, go through severe trials and suffering. Take Job, for example, right? The most righteous man in all the world faced severe trials and suffering. So you're not alone. We love you. We're glad you're here. We all go through trials and suffering from time to time. But what we're praying God will do, what I'm praying God will do in this passage, through this passage in your life, is comfort you and encourage you and strengthen you in the trials and suffering that you're experiencing right now. So let's take a look at what Peter says in this passage about God's purpose for our suffering. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, specific kind of suffering, you are blessed. And that's the word blessed as in joyful, happy. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Powerful, powerful passage. So let's start with this first question. What is God's purpose for trials? And the answer is right there in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised. So when trials come, we shouldn't say, what's happening? Don't, shouldn't be surprised. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Underline those three words, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So God allows trials into your life and into my life for the purpose of testing us. Now, what does that mean? The word testing can mean two very different things. Testing can be for the sake of showing whether something is in you or not, like you take a test at school to see if you know the material, show whether you know the material or not. But testing can also mean to produce something in you. And that's what Peter's meaning is here. The reason I say that is because of that phrase, fiery trial. Underline those two words as well in your Bibles. Fiery trial. That phrase is used numerous times in the Old Testament to describe how fire refines gold. So God's purpose for bringing trials and suffering in our lives is to test us, to refine us, to purify us, 
in the same way as fire refines gold. And so we shouldn't be surprised when trials come because God loves us and God wants to refine us, purify our faith, so that we will have even more joy in Jesus Christ when we stand before him. That's the end of verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's the outcome of refining, purifying trials. Our faith is refined. Our faith is purified. The outcome is that we will rejoice and be glad when God's glory is revealed. Now, what about that first phrase, verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering? I wrestled with that that passage, that verse. I looked up commentaries, and some were helpful, some were not so helpful. What I believe that means is that we share in Christ's sufferings when we We share in Christ's sufferings when we go through suffering because we are sharing in the purpose that Christ suffered for. The reason Christ suffered on the cross was to pay for our sins. He did that fully. Our suffering does not pay for our sins. He already paid for all of our sins. But he paid for our sins and he suffered on the cross to purify us from sin so we could have the joy of knowing God. And likewise, when we go through suffering, we're sharing in that same purpose. It's going to refine us so that we can have even more joy in knowing God. And so God's purpose for trials is to refine our faith so we will have even more joy in beholding Jesus Christ forever, more joy than we would have had without the trial. Okay, so verse 13 talks about being glad when his glory is revealed. That's future when Jesus returns. What about now? And verse 14 speaks to that. Peter brings up an example of suffering that his readers are going through. We've read about how they are persecuted and suffer. And look at what he says. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, there's two Greek words for blessed. One means to speak well of. The other means to be happy. Like in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the one for happy, joyful are those who are poor in spirit. That's the word that's used here. So if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, happy, joyful, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Okay, so you're going through a trial, verse 14. You're being insulted for the name of Christ. God's purpose for that trial is to refine your faith. We've already read in verse 13, that's going to give you more joy when Jesus comes back. But not just will it give you more joy when Jesus comes back. Verse 14, it'll also bring us more joy now because as your faith is refined, those last words in verse 14, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As your faith is refined, and we'll talk about how that happens in a moment, but as your faith is refined, God will give you times where the Holy Spirit gives you such a taste of God's glory, gives you the very experience, a a feeling of God's glory. You'll know his glory. You'll be filled with his glory. And you'll rejoice because of that. Okay, so that's the purpose for trials. Next time a trial comes, large trial, small trial, don't be surprised. Don't say, what's happening? I thought Christians weren't supposed to suffer. No, God loves us. And God wants to bring us all the joy we can possibly have. And so he allows trials to come into our lives to purify and refine our faith. 
and that as those trials purify and refine our faith, they will give us more joy in Jesus forever and more joy in him now than we would have had apart from the trial. That's verses 12 through 14. Now, see what this means. Every trial is a gift to you from God of more joy in him now and forever. Every trial, it's a gift to you from God. We shouldn't be surprised at it. We shouldn't grumble at it. We should receive it. Thank you, Father. We trust you. Just like it was read in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces even more hope in heaven. So that's the purpose for trials. So if you have thought before this passage, before looking at this text, that trials were random or purposeless, please see what God says in this passage. Trials are not random. They're not meaningless. They are full of meaning. Every minute of trial where you let that trial purify and refine your faith will bring you more joy, more pleasure, more nearness with Jesus Christ now and forever than you would have had without that trial. Now think about that. Think about what it means to have more joy in Christ forever. How much value is that? That's massive value. And that's why our loving God brings us trials now to bring us even more joy in Christ now and forever than we would have had without that trial. Now, how do trials refine our faith? We can talk that, we can say that, but how does it really work? How does it really happen? And here's what I learned in that seminary class in 1 Peter from this passage and also chapter 1. What trials do is they remind us of how shaky and insecure this life is. So we pull our security from those things, our faith out of those things, we put it all the more into the unshakable Jesus Christ. That's how trials refine our faith. Now let me give you an illustration that I heard at the seminary class. Each of us is like a a, a pier stretching out from land over the ocean. Anybody been to a pier recently? Jan and I went to the University of California at Santa Barbara, and up north in Gaviota there was this pier heading out over the ocean. So each of us is like a, a pier stretching out over the ocean. And every pier rests on pilings, right? Now, because you're a Christian, you are resting mostly on the unshakable super piling of Jesus Christ. Massive piling, strong piling. Nothing can shake the piling of Jesus Christ. But some of your security and trust still rests on other pilings, like physical health, job security, income, friends. There's nothing wrong with physical health, job security, income, or friends. Nothing wrong with those at all. But none of those are strong enough to secure you and to hold you up. Only Jesus Christ is strong enough to secure you and hold you up no matter what happens. 
Jesus Christ is the unshakable superpiling. Everything else can shake. So in, what that means is then the more you are trusting Christ, the unshakable superpiling, the more security you'll have, the more peace you'll have, the more joy you will have. And so, in great love, God brings big winter waves that come crashing against the pier. And those waves shake those other pilings. So maybe there's rumors of layoffs at your company. Big wave comes, crashes against the, the, the piling of job security. It's shaking. It might go. You don't know what's going to happen. Here comes another wave. And so you're reminded, that's not going to hold me up through my life. I want to put my trust all the more upon Jesus Christ, the unshakable super piling. Okay, or, or you develop, you know, the strange pain in your head and you're thinking, oh my goodness, what if, what if it's, you know, an aneurysm or a tumor or something? And you're reminded, physical health is, is a shaky piling. You're going to put all more of your trust upon the unshakable piling of Jesus Christ. That's how trials refine and purify our faith. They remind us about how everything else apart from Jesus Christ is shaky. Nothing else apart from Jesus Christ is strong enough and secure enough to rest your life upon. So trials remind us of how shaky those things are, so we take our security, our faith out of those things and put it all the more in Jesus Christ. And then we're refined, stronger faith in him, more security, more peace, more joy. See how that works? Now that's what Jan and I experienced as we started to discover that that we were not able to get pregnant. See, God loves us. And it's not that we wanted children too much or anything like that. God just wanted to give us even more pure faith, even stronger faith in his Holy Son, Jesus, so we would have more joy in him now and forever. So this was a gift to us. Our infertility was a gift to us from God of more joy in Christ now and forever. So we understood this passage. We understood that God's purpose was to refine our faith and purify our faith. Nothing wrong with wanting children. Nothing wrong with that at all. But God showed us, you know, that, that's, that's not a secure foundation. So we took security out of that. We took our trust out of that, and we put it all the more upon Jesus Christ. We just spent time praying. Lord, you alone are our rock-solid piling. You alone are unshakable. We want to take our trust out of, out of getting pregnant and having children and put it all the more in you. And so we prayed. We asked the Lord to strengthen us with that. And he brought comfort. He brought peace. He brought strength. He brought joy, the spirit of glory and of God. There were times when... The Holy Spirit made God's glory so real to us that we were filled and we've had more joy in him since and we will forever because of that. So do you see how that works? So those of you who right now are going through suffering and trials, we love you. We're for you. We want to encourage you this morning. God loves you. Don't be surprised that this trial has come. God loves you. This is a gift to you of a more refined faith so that you'll have even more joy. It's a gift to you of more joy in Christ forever. So identify what piling is being shaken by that trial. Relationships piling, health 
piling? Convenience piling? What, what piling is being shaken by that? See what, what, what's being shaken, and then take whatever security trust you've had in that piling, take it out of that piling, and rest it all the more upon Jesus Christ. And through that process, as you pray, Lord, help me to do this. Help me to trust your Holy Son more. Strengthen me in this. Give me that joy that you talk about here as I trust Jesus. He will come and comfort you and strengthen you, give you contentment, and give you joy in him. Every trial is a gift from God of more joy in Christ now and forever. He will do this in you and for you. That's the purpose, and that's how trials refine faith. Okay, so that takes us up through verse 14. Now, in verse 15, Peter changes his tune a little bit. And I think what he's doing here is he realizes that what he's written could be misunderstood by some of the people that he's writing to. So how might this be misunderstood? How might these previous verses be misunderstood? And look at what he says in verses 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Here's what I think is going on here. Some of Peter's readers had been involved in ongoing sin and were suffering as a consequence of that. So Peter wants to be clear that what he has just said about trials does not apply to trials that come as a result of sin. Okay, so in verse 16, if you're suffering as a Christian, that is in the path of obedience to Christ, not that you're sinless, but you're, you're in obedience, you're, you're battling your sin, you're not walking in willful sin, knowing sin, you're, you're fighting your sin, you're, you're seeking to be in the path of obedience. If, if you suffer as a Christian, there's no need to be ashamed. You can rejoice in the glory of God. That's verse 16. But if you're suffering as the result of ongoing, unconfessed, unrepented sin, Peter wouldn't want you to rejoice in your suffering. He would want you to repent in your suffering. You see that? Let's take an easy example. Let's say someone is arrested for drunk driving and is now in jail as a result of that. It would be wrong for that person to think that he should rejoice in that suffering because it was sent by God to bring him even more joy in Jesus. That would be wrong. Peter would say, you've misunderstood me. Okay? That, that suffering was not sent to refine him. That suffering was sent to convict him of his sin so he would repent over his sin. So Peter wants to make sure he's not being misunderstood here. Now here's the beautiful thing. When that person does let that trial convict him, and when that person does let that trial bring him to repentance, Jesus totally forgives him, completely forgives him, will assure him that he's forgiven for all of his past sins, all of his present sins, all of his future sins. Jesus will start to change his heart, free him from being pursuing drunkenness, change his heart, satisfy him in himself. So the moment this person who's in jail for drunk driving turns and says, Jesus, forgive me, help me, Jesus will move in upon him, fill him, satisfy him, forgive him, change him, everything. 
the moment you turn back to Jesus, he's moving in on you with power and forgiveness and love. The moment you do. But see, if you're continuing in willful sin, walking away, Jesus is back here, and you're walking away from Jesus, knowing you are, not confessing, not repenting, and you suffer as a consequence, you're not supposed to say, God has given this to me as a gift, I'm supposed to rejoice in this suffering. No, God wants you to be convicted by that suffering and repent. And the moment you repent and turn back, Jesus is there saying, he's he's coming towards you. I'm going to help you. I'm here. So what Peter is calling those of his readers who are involved in ongoing, willful, known, unconfessed, unrepented sin, he's calling them to repent. Repent. And, And he wants to impress upon them how urgent it is that they repent. And that's the next question I want to address. Why is it so urgent that someone continuing in sin repents? And the reason I want to raise this question is because in verses 17 and 18, what we read is a strong warning to those who are continuing in sin. Peter's giving a strong warning to his readers who are continuing in sin. So let me explain why God gives strong warnings to believers. And then we'll look at these two verses. You may have noticed this in different passages in the New Testament. It's here. It's even more clear in Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, Romans 8, Mark chapter 9. It's throughout the New Testament. God gives warnings to believers. And he says, if you believers continue in sin without confessing it, without repenting of it, without turning back from it, knowingly pursuing sin. If you do that, you will face my judgment forever. You cannot continue in willful sin and think it's all going to be fine and you're going to go to heaven. So all through the New Testament, we see warnings like that given to believers. And it should raise lots of questions in our minds. Because doesn't that mean that a believer can lose his or her salvation. I don't think it means that at all. But let me explain why. I want to make sure you understand this before we look at this warning. All through the Bible we read that when God starts the work of salvation in you, the work that he starts, he says, he will continue it. He will keep you faithful. You won't be perfect, but you'll be persevering in obedience. You'll have ups and downs, but, but you'll repent of your sin. You won't be perfect but you will make it all the way to heaven. He will keep you on the road, and you will enter heaven. The good work that God starts in you, he will continue. He will keep you on the road. You will not continue in sin to the extent that you're going to fall away. You will confess your sin. You will sin, but you'll confess it. You'll repent. You'll come back. He's going to keep you on that road. And these warnings are one of the ways he keeps us on the road. Because these warnings say... Don't go off too far because there's a canyon on the other side. And because God has changed your heart, when you read these warnings, you say, Yikes! I don't want to go off the cliff. I'm going to pull back here. I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess. And so by means of the warnings, God keeps his elect. God keeps his loved ones. God keeps his people from falling away from the faith by means of the warnings. So warnings don't show that we can lose our salvation. Warnings are the way God keeps us from losing our salvation because the warnings keep us on the road. Do you see that? 
So verses 17 and 18 are like signs on the road. Don't go past this point. Turn back. Repent. Okay? And look at what he says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, with God's people. And if it begins with us, with God's people, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That is, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey, who continue in willful sin without repentance? What will be the outcome? It'll be eternal judgment. Now, it's a little puzzling that Peter talks about judgment beginning at the household of God with God's people. And here Peter, the way he's using judgment is it's that God's judgment touches both believers and unbelievers, but in very different ways. Very different ways. God's judgment begins with believers, but this judgment is not a punishing judgment, not a condemning judgment. It's a refining and a blessing judgment. Now here's how Tom Schreiner describes it. He's one of my favorite commentators on 1 Peter. He's the professor of New Testament at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Kentucky. He says, the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God, and that purification comes through suffering, making believers morally fit for their inheritance. Okay, so that's, there's a sense in which God's judgment touches believers. It's not a punishing judgment. It's a blessing refining, purifying judgment that's going to bring us great joy. But this judgment, which now refines believers, will in the future punish unbelievers, those who continue in willful sin. And that's the point of verse 18. Peter quotes from a a proverb in the Old Testament. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, that word scarcely is a little difficult word to translate there. Most commentators think that what Peter's referring to there isn't like just getting barely saved, but it means you're saved through suffering. You're saved through some battle against sin. You're saved through some labor. Strive to enter through the narrow door, Jesus said. Okay, so if the righteous is saved with suffering and effort, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what Peter is saying is don't continue in willful sin. So let me just address, I mean, I I don't know who you might be, but if if you're involved in some area that you know is sin and you are not planning on repenting, you're not planning on confessing it, you're just planning on continuing in this willful sin, Peter, I think with tears in his eyes, would say, don't do it. What do you think is going to happen to you if If judgment starts with the household of God, a judgment that's purifying and blessing, what's going to happen to those who continue to disobey the gospel? You will face God's judgment. Now you say, well, I don't know if I have the strength to turn from this sin. You don't. You don't have the strength to turn from that sin. But you turn to Jesus and say, help me. And he has the strength. He totally has the strength. He will change your heart. He will help you. He will support you. He will encourage you. He will pour his love into your life. He will fill you with his presence. He will give you everything you need. But you've got to turn and say, help me. I'm sorry. Help me. And he will come running to you with everything that you need. 
So are you involved in ongoing willful sin? Please turn to Jesus. Repent of that sin and ask him for help. He will help you. That's what Peter's saying here. Now, one last point Peter wants to make, and that is, so how should we respond to trials? This is verse 19. He says, therefore, here's the the punchline for this whole section. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. So now he's addressing back to those who are walking the path of obedience, not perfectly, but battling the sin you know you have. You're, You're walking the path of obedience. Now he's back to talking to the rest of us, okay? Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's how we should respond to trials. When we understand that trials are not random, they are not meaningless, they are gifts from God of refining of our faith to bring us even more joy in him now and forever, more joy than we could have had without the trial. When we understand that, then we will entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So what that means is, take your trust out of whatever piling is being shaken by that trial. Take it out of that piling and put it all the more upon Jesus Christ, the unshakable piling. It also means trusting him, notice, entrusting our souls to our faithful creator. He's faithful. What that means is that he will keep all of his promises to you. As you're going through that suffering, and suffering can bring tears, it can bring grief, it can bring sorrow, nothing wrong with that. But trust God's promise that in his love, he's allowing this trial to come to bring you the gift of even more joy in him now and forever. He's faithful. He's faithful. He's promised that in this passage. Trust his promise. Lord, in the pain of this, you promise you're going to bring me more joy in you now. Please bring it. I'm asking you for it. Fill me. Meet me. Help me. And more joy in you forever. I trust your promise. So trust he's the faithful creator. And then trust him as the faithful creator, which means he is all-powerful. That's so crucial when you're going through trials because if you're anything like me, when I go through trials, I start getting filled with doubt. I start getting filled with discouragement. I start feeling hopeless. I start feeling far from God. But God is the creator. He has all power, and that means he has the power to create in you a clean heart. He has the power to create faith in your heart, to have faith spring up. In your heart, faith in Jesus Christ to blossom in your heart. He can do that. He's all powerful. He can change your heart when you're discouraged and feeling hopeless in the midst of your trial. And it also means not letting this trial cause you to pull back from doing good, but to continue walking the path of doing good. That's how we should respond. Trials are not random, they're not purposeless. Every trial is allowed to come to you by God for the purpose of refining your faith to bring you even more nearness with Christ, even more outpourings of the love of Christ, 
in this life and forever than you would have had had you not experienced that trial. Let's pray. Father, as we move to our time of communion now, this is, this is the perfect response to this passage. Because we can't do this apart from your help. And so we want to come to you now. We want to come to the communion table now as needy, sinful, weak men, women, young people. We come as needy and sinful and weak, and you promise to provide everything we need through the cross. All the forgiveness we need, provided. All the strength we need, provided freely. All the comfort we need for the trials we're going through, poured out upon us freely through the cross. All the hope we need, all the courage we need, all the faith. We need everything we need poured out through the cross freely for us. So I pray, Lord, that now as we come for this time of communion, that you would powerfully meet us. I pray especially, and we pray especially, for those in our midst who are going through severe trials and suffering. We plead with you, Lord. Meet them in a powerful way now. Pour your comfort upon them your assurance upon them, your strength, your hope, your joy upon them. Do that, we pray, in Jesus' name.